Hello, and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your session and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith, Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. This podcast is a companion to Chapter 8 in the book. Chapter 8 is titled A Developmental Primer and begins with an essential question, Dr. Smith. Why should a discussion of psychological development be considered part of a therapist's basic knowledge? Uh, Boy, yes, and how. I'll tell you a, a quick story. The best thing that happened to me in my training was spending a year in an elective with uh, toddlers, with little kids who were from 18 months to 20, 24 months, and observing them and talking with their mothers about them as part of a research project. And it really began to give me some sense of how the world looks through the eyes of a child. Most of the problems that we try to, that we're there to help people with, most of the problems that we deal with in therapy were encountered by children and the solutions that are the maladaptive patterns we see were invented by children. And if we understand very well how children work and what kinds of of challenges and and difficulties they encounter, then we'll we'll have a much greater understanding of the sorts of problems that they have and it'll also give us a sense of compassion as we see you know reactions that don't make sense in adult terms and when you understand that these are normal reactions when you look at them through the eyes of a child it gives you a much um, more accepting kind of of stance in psychology developmental theory is a large subject and i'm wondering how do you approach development in this chapter what i'm doing with this chapter is really sharing the ideas that have been most helpful to me in my practice over the years and they come from a, a wide range of different sources there are the the schemas that piaget talked about and and a, a lot of things from uh, psychodynamics from how children develop in their their understanding of things like the concept of time and some of it influenced by understanding the difference between factual knowledge and procedural knowledge. So there's a lot of different things that go into it. What I do here is to boil it down to uh, a, a few critical issues that come up along, uh, along the developmental path. You state throughout the chapter, and, and I have a question about this, that it is important that development is not seen as made up of stages. Right. The, the concept of stages is it's, it's a little bit misleading because uh, what we actually see is even though on the average children do go through stages, but what we see when, when we're in the office is we see that maybe certain components, certain threads of development might have gotten stuck 
where other threads would keep on going. And for example, we see often where people's strengths are actually results of some of the challenges that they face. But at the same time, there might be other areas that are more difficult. For example, the Jack, the, the man that we talked about from the very beginning, is somebody who has a lot of strength in the area of self-sufficiency, of handling things on his own, because nobody was there to handle them for him. So he developed extra strength in that area, but in terms of his ability to admit to weakness and to ask other people to help him, he's, he's severely handicapped. So that's a nice example. So I think of development as really involving different threads and that any one of them can get stuck. And the good news about development is that when the job of therapy is to help somebody do the development that they didn't do a long time ago, it doesn't matter at what age you take up the job. It's pretty much the same. It works the same, and there's a lot of hope for being able to go through those processes and acquire the developmental skills or, or assets that, that were missed out on a long time ago. So you use the word hope, and, uh, and also you use the word compassion, and state how knowledge brings compassion, and that some clients who had some form of arrested development at around two years old, say, can be especially trying to the therapist. Can you tell us how compassion fits into those trials? Uh, sure. You know, sometimes sometimes patients get really angry at their therapist. They, they don't like what you, what you might have to say, and they can really lose control and be, and be really quite extreme. And if you, if you take that as an adult anger, then you're not going to know what to do, and you'll have to send them out of your office. But if you realize that there's a, there's a child self who's kind of taken over at that point, then it's a lot easier to understand and to deal with it in a, in a compassionate way and put out the fire and then find a way to begin to, to talk about what's happened. Are there some things that make it difficult to tackle developmental problems in the therapy room? Well, I, there actually actually are um, that all of us have have a sense of pride about our maturity, and if if there are areas where we're, we've got some immaturity or some weakness, you, you know, our value system from the earliest age puts a premium on on being grown up, and so so it's hard for us to admit. It's hard for anybody to admit that they're not acting in such a grown up way. And so patients will try to rationalize what they do as if it's a reasonable response to the present-day present circumstances when it's really a childlike response that comes out of, of behavior from a long time ago. So it helps to be very tactful when we deal with this. That's why I like the word young. I, I'll say to people, I think, I think we're dealing with a young reaction in you, that, that there's a part of you that's experiencing this in a way that's, that reminds me of how things must have been a long time ago. As opposed to immature or right, of, baby. Of, of, yeah, that's image, right, exactly. <laughs> so it takes, uh, it takes a good deal of, of tactfulness, and, and I think it maybe helps to introduce the idea that all of us have, have parts of ourselves that are rather uh, young or even childlike. I don't say childish, I say childlike. 
are, are some of these parts non-conscious? Definitely, these things get, these reactions get triggered, usually outside of consciousness, and they just, they just pop out. And the, the further you go in intensive therapy, the more patients get comfortable and, and their instinctive reactions just come out. And, uh, and so you're more, everybody's on their best behavior at the beginning of a relationship. And as you begin, as you go a little further, you're gonna see things that are more automatic and maybe more obviously coming from another time and place. Right, so then our stream of thoughts are a mixture of irrational and rational, young and adult. Right, and, and that's an interesting thing that we do tend to try to rationalize things. And so, for example, if somebody has two different feelings, like a love and, and a hate feeling about the same person, they'll, they'll try to mush those together and say, well, you know, I sort of like that person, she's, she's okay. It, and, and what's really useful from a therapy standpoint is to look at the, at the two streams that came together to make that end result, that I, I have hateful feelings towards that person because of this, this, and this, and at the same time, I appreciate that person. I like them. I'm attached to them. We can deal with those two different streams separately because they each have a different reason for being and a different origin. But when you mush them together, then that's neither here nor there. So a lot of times it's useful to, to kind of peel back to the raw emotions that are present. Uh, and, and similarly, people rationalize in all, in all sorts of ways and and quite a bit of what we do as therapists is to help people begin to see those rationalizations and, and kind of gently dismantle them and respect and value the more intense, more real feelings that might be behind the rationalization. Right, in order to give them some air, some room to breathe mm -hmm. so they can detoxify. Exactly, that's right. Which would again require a very warm-hearted and compassionate attitude toward the child who's holding these quote-unquote irrational right. and raw feelings. Right. It's interesting. Uh, in in my own uh, therapy, I've in the last few years, I've I've have used occasionally the, the the concept of adult temper tantrums, and it's amazing how receptive adults can be to the fact that the, what they're doing, their destructive behavior, actually is exactly like a temper tantrum. Speaking of temper tantrums, you in this chapter go into um, narcissism and borderline personality disorder, but first you start talking about self-other differentiation, which I think is the foundation for personality disorders. Right, so, so now let's go into what I, what I give in the chapter is a kind of a catalog through the years of development at what points we see different kinds of pathology um, that has their origins there. And so the, the most severe pathology that we see that might be manifested in somebody who's, who's schizophrenic, for example, has to do with developing a sense of, of the self as, a, as distinct from other people at the very earliest ages, children don't really have any, any way of sensing that there's a difference between self and other. And if you think of, of the one-year-old toddler who's just thrilled with being able to, uh, to stand up and walk on two feet, 
and, and takes a look at mom and she's smiling from that child, has no concept that there's a difference between his wish or her wish and the wishes of mom. And so even if mom says, oh no, that's not a good idea, don't do that, it doesn't feel like a reprimand, it just, it's just some, something. And, but meanwhile, in, in terms of the experience, the toddler really feels like he's totally one with mom. Well, there are circumstances, and it might be partly biological, as in the case of schizophrenia, where there's a special sensitivity and that gradual understanding of where I stop and you begin uh, doesn't really happen very clearly. And uh, I gave an example in the, in the book of, of a, a man whose uh, I, I treated early in my career, whose, whose mom said very proudly, oh, all I have to do is say, oh, I wish I had a newspaper. And he would go out and fetch a newspaper for her. And there wasn't really an appreciation from either of them consciously of how it would be much more clean for her to say, you know, son, would you, would you mind getting me a newspaper? I'd really like to have one. Because when you say that, it shows the boundary between my will and yours, that yours, you might or might not want to do that. When you say, thank you and please, that's recognizing the separateness of the other person. Mm -hmm. She didn't do that. And later on, he said something that I'll never forget. He said, well, you trust your mother, but you cut the cards. Hmm. And I mean, it was very clear from his symptoms that a lot of them had to do with feeling very threatened in terms of his, his existence as, a, as an individual. Uh, so that was one, one example. But those very, very early issues of of where the limits of what's me and where do you begin takes time to establish. But by the time we hit age two, normally that's pretty much in place. But then in the twos, we come to the next major challenge. I know that you go into um, attachment styles uh, in greater depth in chapter 14, mm -hmm. which is attachment and separation. Attachment and separation maybe between age one and two, maybe eight months and two, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, where it's already clear that I'm me and you are you, and, and, I, and I'm attached to you. And that's where if there are problems in that area, we start to see the attachment uh, disorders or different attachment styles. So if a mother is, is not very attuned not accurately attuned to the child's emotions and, and wishes and things. So the, the, the child shows uh, fear, let's say, and, and mom doesn't quite notice that and goes on pushing the child into something that he or she is afraid of. You know, it's that kind of misattunement might lead to an avoidant attachment or an ambivalent attachment um, or a disorganized attachment where the where the kid can never figure out quite how to deal with mom, how to navigate the relationship. I, I think of that, you know, this, these are ages that are very approximate, but it's a little bit helpful to think of that as being from one to two is the time when you, when you begin to figure out how to, how to navigate relationships. But you do say something that is very interesting here and uh, about securely attached patients and how they have an easier time in therapy and forming an effective alliance. Yeah, thank you for, for, for bringing that up. It's really, really important. If adults 
have that secure attachment style, then it's easy for them to form a bond with their therapist and to get help from the therapist, and that's great, and therapists love that. We also have often have positive feelings about the people who have a clingy, uh, insecure attachment and anxious sort of attachment because they really want to come and see us and they're thrilled to have us pay attention to them and and be there for them. So they're used to being eager to, to have a relationship. So those also can do well in therapy. But the, the ones who avoid attachment, who avoid allowing another person to be important to them, they tend to get poor, not as good treatment in therapy because they don't gratify the therapist. So we need to recognize that and to be willing to hang in with somebody who doesn't really know how to use our services. And the disorganized attachment style is similar. That's a person who just doesn't know how to interact in a way that's satisfying to both parties. And so that person might just be be kind of confused and, and not always appropriate in the way that they ask for attention, the way they use the, the attention and the, and the help that they get. So those are very, very important, and I think, unfortunately, a source of some unfairness for the, for the, the people who happen to wind up with the wrong kinds of attachment styles. And so understanding these attachment styles um, will help us therapists create a better, stronger connection, perhaps, with the patient so that we can then begin to tackle mm -hmm. their EDPs, mm -hmm. their entrenched dysfunctional patterns. Mm -hmm. And, and also sometimes naming some of those characteristics and, and saying, you know, I think, I think there are reasons why it's hard for you to make use of, of the relationship here. You should be getting more support from the therapy, and there are some reasons why maybe that's not a natural thing for you. And so um, then you venture a theory to the patient. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, then, then the, the, this is the biggie, the next big challenge. It's the terrible twos. The power struggle. Right. Yeah, this is where the chapter gets really juicy for me. <laughs> okay, and, and, and a lot of the big problems that we see really come from that, that period. If you think about it, for human beings in general, dealing with having negative feelings about somebody that you need and care about really makes a big problem for us. Um, how, how many of us avoid those difficult conversations with somebody you care about? How many marriages get ruined because two people, instead of hashing out their, their differences and their disagreements, uh, just avoid them, and, and as a result, things get worse and worse and worse, and finally the marriage blows up. So mm -hmm. this is really important stuff. So what happens is the one-year-old who's been at, at one with mom suddenly has enough cognitive development to realize that the mom who says no is the same mom who says yes. And, oh my gosh, and children aren't really prepared to deal with that, uh, at least very quite often they're not. It's a, it's a big thing to come to accept, and that's where you have temper tantrums. The temper tantrum is where a child wants something and really, really wants it, and mom or dad or whoever it is says no, you can't do that, that's not okay. Well, so the first reaction, the natural reaction of the child is rage. You know, yes I do, I want that, you have to give that to me. And then what happens is that rage leads to a fear. 
because if your rage is that big and children don't know whether their rage is big enough to destroy the relationship, destroy the other person, who knows? They have no idea what the power is of the rage they're feeling, but the fear is that that rage is somehow going to destroy the relationship or destroy the person, and then you're going to be all alone. So you have a child who's tied up in an emotional turmoil that involves just as much life and death fear as it does rage and desire to have what you want. And in the child's mind, the only solution is for the adult to give me what I want. And so the child rages and wants to break toys or, or hit or scream or whatever, and it just escalates into something that's more and more frightening. So let's think about what happens under the best conditions. Ideally, the parent picks up that kid, gives him a bear hug, and, and prevents the child from doing any real harm. Contains the rage. Contains the rage. And then after a while, the raging goes on for a little while, maybe longer, maybe a few minutes. And then the child kind of runs out of energy. And it's clear experientially for that child that nothing terrible has happened and that they're still loved. Right. And so they stop raging and pretty soon the tears start. And then they feel very good about being held and, and loved and cared about. And so the, the total experience allows them to realize, allows them to internalize the fact that having a disagreement with somebody you love is not the end of the world. And that is a huge thing. And it's so easy for parents who are still anxious about disagreeing with their child and children who are anxious about disagreeing with their parents, it's, it's too easy to find ways to avoid that. And if you avoid going through it, then the end result is that that piece of development gets left behind. And you might have either a narcissistic personality disorder or a borderline personality disorder. Okay, so you state in the book that for children who experience this difficult passage, of being able to negotiate the intensity and strength of the rage as too overwhelming to navigate, the two characteristic forms of pathology can become established, narcissism or borderline personality. But mm -hmm. in a way, it seems to me that if the parent experiences this difficult passage as too overwhelming, it will lead the child quite possibly to having those forms of pathology established. Right, because like, let's say, let's talk about narcissism first. Let's say the parent gives in every time. Like I remember a, a, a patient who described to me that as a, as a young child, he got in the family car, undid the emergency brake on a hill, and the car went back, went down and crashed into the neighbor's car. And the mother said that the neighbor shouldn't have parked there. Right. <laughs> it was the neighbor's fault. <laughs> That's right. And, and so, you know, that was part of a pattern. And, and so if the parent helps a child to avoid that situation, then what's a child going to learn? That losing a battle is, is something that is inconceivable, cannot happen. It would be the worst thing in the world. You have to win every battle. Mm -hmm. And so what will they do? Well, they'll come out with some hypertrophy in some strengths and the ability to manipulate people and win battles because they're terrified of losing any, any time. And they'll never learn that it's okay to lose. It's okay. You don't win everything. And so that's one of the, one of the things that's kind of fundamental 
to the narcissistic personality disorder where the person always has to win, always has to be appreciated, always has to be on top of things and begins to have to fudge reality in order to accomplish that and manipulate other people. And those people can come, can rise up to positions of great power because they have to win every battle and can be in, in very important roles and still have an extremely, this one piece of development completely unresolved. So how does devaluing fit into this? Well, narcissistic patients will automatically protect themselves by devaluing their therapist. And as therapists, we have to be very careful not to allow that to happen. They'll respect us if we, um, if we don't allow them to devalue. So when, when, a, when a patient does something that's devaluing to the therapist, we have to react not in an angry, aggressive way, but in a, in a firm way. To, to let them know that that's not going to be okay. So so this is this is really tricky. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a little this bit. Is, of- this is probably the most challenging psychotherapeutic job that we that we have to do. Right. It's kind of like treating a porcupine in a way. Exactly. And so then, can you give us a concrete example of how we would confront the uh, a patient's attempt at devaluating us? What would we do? How would we respond firmly without uh, mm-hmm. uh, engaging in the power struggle at which they are supremely competent, mm-hmm. having a lifetime of experience? And, and sometimes you have to let go. Um, I'm thinking of a patient who I, I tried to say something that was true and, and she wasn't ready to hear it. And bang, that was the end of the relationship. And it wasn't until a few months later that she came back. And, you know, I didn't try to argue because it was, there wasn't any arguing there. All I could do really was let it go. And eventually she came back. And even then, I wasn't going to try too hard to rehash what had happened because it would have, would have recreated the same old thing. Um, the same patient last night got upset with me and shut down the, the session and by shutting down the session, you mean is, she this was out? on the phone. This okay. was on the phone, and um, so after that, I sent a, I sent a text that said, "I'm sorry about that. I hope you have a good evening." And this morning, um, it was okay, and she acknowledged that. Um, or even it was even last night, she acknowledged that um, that I hadn't done anything terrible and that we were okay. And so there's little by little, there's an understanding, but still a lot of sensitivity. Next, borderline pathology. Okay, and the, the, the best way I know of understanding what makes borderline pathology where somebody is able to have a very positive relationship with somebody, a very intense positive attachment, and then all of a sudden turns out that that person is the worst person in the world and has no redeeming features and the whole relationship blows up in a dramatic, ugly scene. The best way to understand that comes from the psychodynamic point of view and from the idea that children don't start out with one schema to cover good me and good mom and bad me and bad mom. That they have a tendency to split those into or to experience those two relationships as separate. That when I'm not so good and when mom's not so happy with me that's one relationship 
and that's kept separate in the mind from another relationship which is where I'm, I'm just fine and mom loves me and everything's okay. What needs to happen is those two need to be fused together. And you can picture how the successful resolution of temper tantrums is one way that that happens, that, that the conflictual relationship gets merged in with the, the positive relationship and they become one where mom loves me most of the time and sometimes she says no and she still loves me and I love her and I can be good and I'm bad and I'm still lovable. Now, when you put those two together, the good self and, and bad self, good mom and bad mom, when you put those all together into one set of internalized relationships, those are three-dimensional. Right. Mom They're real, becomes like, a three-dimensional person. Right. Like, like, like Marlon Brando is a three-dimensional character who's got good sides and bad sides. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, if you read tabloid newspapers, you, if you look at the stories, they tend to be two-dimensional. They're either, you know, the good doctor and the, and the, and the patient who's been saved and the, the bad doctor who did the wrong thing or the bad person. They tend to be black and white. So what circumstance leads a child to be unable to integrate his perception of good mom and bad mom into one three-dimensional whole. So it's a, it's a different outcome to the same challenge. The challenge of the fact that from age two more or less that there are times when the child is, is in sync with mom and everything's great and there are times when you're not in sync and things are scary and terrible. And so why some children go wind up with a narcissistic and some wind up with the borderline, I'm not exactly sure. I think it's maybe it has something to do with inborn temperament or who knows what. But they're, they're two different versions for failure to resolve the same, um, the same issue of conflict with the people that you need and love. So when that borderline uh, patient walks into our therapy room, how do we approach this very temperamental person with that deep mm -hmm. compassion and understanding mm -hmm. and how do we generally what's the best way to approach this person so what I'd say about that is is first in terms of assessment when you ask the person about their relationships that's when you get a glimpse into are these two-dimensional relationships or are these really full-bodied, three-dimensional appreciation of another human being. If you see the full-bodied, three-dimensional thing, then whatever, whatever anger or whatever it is that comes out, is, it's, it's not, in my mind, it's not a true borderline. There might be borderline behavior, but it's not really the, the defect in, in the um, psychic structure isn't the same. When that defect is there, when, when the person really isn't able to appreciate a three-dimensional relationship, then the best way I have to think about it is, is sort of like you're a rock on the shore. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you've got to be prepared to be a rock while the wild storms and raging, uh, raging seas crash against you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the fact that, that the patient begins to experience us as reliable that we don't change, that we, we're not shaken by whatever they bring to us, that we're still okay, um, fosters a kind of a sense of security and, and gradually the patient is able to internalize 
a more positive three-dimensional kind of relationship that it's okay. So we're we're essentially picking up the development where where it got stuck years ago and through the relationship allowing development to proceed as it normally would. Right. No small feet. Correct. <laughs> and this can take a long time and it's not so easy to be on the other end of those storms, which is why understanding what's going on behind the scenes is really helpful. And this is not the person where if you explain what's going on and give them a theory, it's going to be a much help because this is all much too intense and and young. And this is where techniques like DBT incorporate a lot of tricks and methods to help people calm down the intensity to a point where, where some learning and, and some growth is, is easier to achieve. If it's too tumultuous and dramatic, that's not very good for the, for the therapy outcome. And it's also the place where, where patients may act out in self-destructive ways, cutting and things like that. Right. So beyond these, these two forms of pathology uh, derived from power struggles, you then go on to speak of crime and punishment. This is where the conscience begins to come in. The, there's, there's evidence that the early development of the prefrontal cortex begins around 18 months, and that's the place where the conscience resides. But it doesn't really become very effective, very ready to function until somewhere around age three. And you think about a three-year-old. Two-year-olds don't care about being good and bad. They don't really care about what's right and wrong. But three-year-olds do. They want to be a good kid. And that's an indication that there's already a set of internal values in place that's beginning to have an influence on behavior. Not very strong, not very consistent, but it's there and can be important. So this is where when the child begins to be at odds with their own internalized values, they're susceptible to feelings of shame and even guilt, but probably more shame at this, at this age, because guilt is a little, more, a little more specific. So this is a time when, when I see shame as an issue in my mind, I tend to go back to somewhere in this age three, in this middle area of, of childhood, and it can go on after that. So you mean when you see shame in the patient in the room, in your thinking, you mm -hmm. go back to that developmental stage right. to see what could have possibly gone wrong. Right. So if there are issues, let's say, in, in still, we're still struggling with that issue of disagreeing with mom or mom being angry at me, then the solution of the three-year-old might be to turn against the self. Self-loathing. And this is where depression might be a response to um, to a mismatch with with one's own values to shame and identification with the aggressor with taking on negative attitudes towards the self so a lot of people can't remember what life was like for them at three years old and cannot really remember their family dynamics and could maybe guess or extrapolate. Can you give us a concrete example of, of how you would go back to that developmental stage to identify um, a critical point that was not successfully resolved for the child? Well, so going back to, to actual memory isn't really relevant. We're dealing with memory. 
it's just a different kind of memory. It's, it's experiential memory. And so when a pattern gets repeated, when somebody gets reprimanded by their boss and they feel an, an unreasonable amount of shame and self-blame for when it was the boss who was really unreasonable, you know, we're seeing here and now a, a pattern that has its origins somewhere back in that, in that period after the formation of the conscience. And what do we do with that? Well, to some extent, it might, be a, it might be that the person could adopt a change in attitude. They might be able to recognize, at least intellectually, that the boss is wrong and I really didn't do a bad job. But what's even more important there is behavior. When the person behaves as if they're wrong, behaves as if they're devalued, then that perpetuates this, this kind of false belief. It perpetuates the, the irrational attitude that's against the self. And so unless you have change in behavior along with a change in your thinking and your attitude, that's going to tend to go to stay in place. That's going to be very hard to, to change. So when it comes to internalized attitudes, like of, of shame, for example, that's where, again, I say, I, I say the kitchen sink, that use everything, use psychoeducation, use behavior change, use anything you can come up with to help the person react in a more self-affirming way instead of this self-denying uh, sort of response pattern. Right, so that self-punishment does not become the solution to the problems that the child or the patient did not create. Exactly. And that's, that's a, a pretty common one. Um, the rules. Tell us about the rules starting around age four. Yeah. So I, not infrequently I, I, see, I see people who seem to act as if they're following a system that says, if I follow the rules, if I'm a good person and I do the things the way they're supposed to, then shouldn't everybody else? And it seems like a great concept, but the world doesn't work that way. But when I think about, okay, what age does that come from? And what comes to me is, is something like somewhere between age four and, and eight, let's say. Uh, Eight-year-olds will, will argue for hours about whether, uh, whether somebody followed the rules in a game or not, or did they, did they cheat? And they'll go over that and over it and over it. Rules are very important for children in that age, especially if they come from an unstable family situation. They'll, and they learn that there are rules in life and that things are supposed to be a certain way, they're very often going to take that and, and adopt it as a, as a way of trying to bring some order to themselves and their world, and, and, and then may not, may not be able to realize that there's more complexity, that other people need to be motivated to follow the rules. Uh, there needs to be something in it for them. So I, I just think of, of this as coming from somewhere in that four to eight age range when, when children learn about rules and, and, and learn that there's some kind of order to it. And you'll notice that this is a kind of, of EDP, of, of entrenched dysfunctional pattern that has more to do with ideas than it does with this more experiential kind of learning that goes in the patterns we've talked about before. Well, it, it seems to me that it could also lead to rigidity, right? To an overemphasis mm -hmm. of rules and regulations mm -hmm. and an inability to 
um, have flexibility in, mm -hmm. in their dealings with the world and others. Absolutely, exactly right. And it makes me think of perfectionism as another, another characteristic that might have its origins around this, um, this period of development with the idea that, that if I'm perfect, if there's nothing wrong with me, then I can't be criticized and then, and then I'm going to be loved and everything's going to be okay. So then when you have a very rigid patient in the room, look to um, chaos in the, in the family of origin, uh, clinging to rules as a life preserver of sorts? Right, that, that's a pretty good starting point. Mm -hmm. You know, things by this time, two-year-olds are complicated, uh, four-year-olds are incredibly complicated, and so I think s simple formulas like that are no longer really as useful. It's, it's better to actually find out, now we have some memory to go from, so it's better to try to find out what was really going on and maybe you can f can develop a formulation that would that would explain how it is that the that the individual sort of got stuck on that point of view about how to solve life's problems another point of view that uh, you discuss is the someday phenomenon beginning at around age five uh, right I, I really love that one because I was I, I learned all about Oedipus complexes and stuff like that in my training, and I haven't seen it very often, but it's there every once in a while. Yes, that's it, and and that's so. My way of understanding this is that at around age five and a half, children become aware of the of the arc of time in life. They can begin to imagine themselves, their own life, extending off into the distant future. And that's the time when they begin to really appreciate fairy tales that start with once upon a time and they end with happily ever after. It's all about time. Well, time gives a new power to the child's ability to use their intellect to solve their problems. Because if you've got a problem when you're a five-year-old, then you can say, well, someday I'm going to be or someday I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And that allows you to build hope in the future so that you can, you don't have to solve your problems right now in the here and now. Yeah, you, you quote uh, Piaget as saying, grasping time is tantamount to freeing oneself from the present. It's exactly true that when you, when you can think of a future, then you don't have to worry so much about the present. And we human beings do that, but we, we have a tendency not to realize that we only acquired that ability somewhere around age five. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, so a littler kid who's feeling uncomfortable about weak and powerless, let's say, is going to have to imagine that right now I'm Superman, I'm, I'm a superpower, or I can do this, or I can do that, and they'll fantasize in the present that, that they can do things they can't really do, and that gives them some feeling of mastery, but it's much. But that goes against reality, you know. And so, you know, there's the danger every once in a while. A, a kid thinks they're Superman and jumps out a window or something like that, and can be dangerous. But as soon as you get that ability to project into the future, then you no longer have to solve problems in the here and now. So you you so it allows for hope, and. You also state that the second advantage of the someday solution is that they don't require changing the adults around the child. 
That's right. All of the solutions to problems up to the up to this someday solution, all of those solutions involve somehow motivating the grown-ups to solve the problem. I won't say everything because being a superhero is is not quite that, but an awful lot of the problem solving of children has to do with getting the getting the grown-ups to solve it. And and we'll see that with patients. Patients don't even they don't even give themselves the job of thinking how to solve their problem. They may just just really act as if the way to solve it is to get the grown-ups to do it. So get the, the, world, the world around them has to change has and to not change. them. That's exactly right. So this someday solution involves changing me, doing something about me so that I'm going to be able to, to solve the problems that I have in the future. Uh, so it's, it's much more mature in that way, much more sophisticated. We also notice that around age five also that children begin to have a more sophisticated idea of relationships and that brings some problems with it because now you have the problem of jealousy. There's triangular situations within the family. If I'm daddy's favorite, then is mommy going to be mad at me? And that can begin to be an issue. So the relationships are more complicated at that point. You know, I find myself using this someday solution in my own practice uh, where I identify, or with my patient, we identify the therapeutic goals as the shore that we want to swim mm -hmm. toward. And uh, just to, to continue to give them hope, mm -hmm. I, I will every so often say, you know, someday mm -hmm. when, when you resolve this problem, la di da 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 and and i find that it's that it's very effective that it does give them hope and that at the same time it it provides it creates more resilience because it defers the solution to a future time mm -hmm. and increases mm -hmm. um affect tolerance mm -hmm. right so now i just need to to say how this can go wrong because it sounds pretty good actually it's a great solution the way it goes wrong is if the solution involves something that runs into trouble with the conscience. Like maybe the solution is for a boy getting physical with, with mom is, is the thing that seems like that's going to provide some soothing sense of, of safety and that's you're not supposed to do that. So that's that's the recognition of the Oedipal complex that's that you correct. just identified in the beginning. Right, and the conscience says no, you're not supposed to do that. What happens is the whole plan of of using this physical solution gets buried and and becomes outside of consciousness. When things go outside of consciousness, they don't change. They're frozen, and that may only turn up later on in life as an inhibition or as a self-sabotage in some certain specific area. Uh, those would be the indicators that maybe we're dealing with this Oedipal kind of, kind of trouble. Mm. So in later childhood, children and adults uh, use power over others to avoid their own painful feelings of weakness. Right. At, at, that, at that area of development, so we're talking about you know, older, older childhood, um, up to early teens, bullying is a big factor. And, and maybe that's the thing that I see most that really has marked a person in that age range is, is bullying. And that can bring out that same kind of identification with the aggressor, with, with 
people who, who tend to devalue themselves and kind of turn against themselves. And it attracts abusers from then on uh, because abusers detect this kind of pattern. So sometimes I think that experiences, let's say in middle school, can become really life-changing because patterns that are developed around that age can persist. What about in adolescence? In adolescence, a, a satisfactory adolescent development happens when you make tough decisions, you try out new things, you do things you're scared of, and as you do it, you get a better sense of who you are, of what your strengths and weaknesses are, of how relationships work. And one of the biggest changes that takes place is, is going from borrowing values from your family and just, just following your family's values because that's your family, to actually having a sense of ownership. So it isn't until adolescence that we start to see people who are willing to stand up for a principle or even die for it, because that, that principle is now theirs. So, so deeper relationships, stronger sense of self, strength, sense of, of, of values are among the kinds of things that adolescents develop. Also self-control and impulse control are important things that are acquired during adolescence. Yes, those sound like very healthy adolescents. They probably wouldn't come into our room. Yes, <laughs> and, and we get to see um, uh, nowadays that we have, and, and not everybody's going to agree with me about this, but I, I don't have much to say about marijuana and adults, but I can tell you that marijuana and adolescence is a bad combination because what happens when young people smoke pot, they feel relaxed and, they, and the culture encourages them not to challenge themselves. And so they simply don't get the, the experiences that lead to positive adolescent development. And we get to see when, when the 24-year-old decides finally that it's time to get away from pot, we see that the things that are missing are exactly those, those attributes that I mentioned before because the experiences that lead to them haven't happened. In terms of adolescence, the alternation between maturity and regression that we can oftentimes identify in them, you call it the adolescent dance. Right, where, where the adolescent, instead of, I mentioned this in an earlier podcast, instead of fighting to control one's own impulses, it's easier to get the, to get the parents to take charge of the good behavior and then I can be responsible for the bad behavior. And so the way young people initiate that sort of interaction is they act irresponsibly to the point where the parents have to sort of take over and then it becomes a fight between the adolescent and the, and the parents for, for discipline or the adolescent and police or, or the school authorities or whoever. You state also that what marks the end of adolescence is when young people begin to focus more on their own lives than on conflict with parents and authorities. Exactly. And so I've I've heard parents say, well, my IQ uh, dipped down 30 or 40 points. And then once my young person was about about 23, then, then suddenly I started to be smart again. Right. The thing that we see nowadays is that adolescence drags on into young adulthood and uh, can last a lot more. So very often when we work with young adults, we're really working with adolescent issues. Yeah, and that could use its own dedicated podcast. 
That's that's right. It will it will have that. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, you you say something uh, that I think is very true regarding old age, that the adage that one can't teach an old dog new tricks is not true. Yes. I thought that was really profound. Yeah, because we see a lot of times the kinds of adjustments that older people have to make to loss of health, loss of friends, loss of spouse, moving to a different place. Those are huge adjustments, and most older people make them gracefully. So I think we really need to have more respect for the amount of the challenges that older life brings and the kind of skills that people bring to it. And when they don't, when they have trouble adjusting, it isn't a big surprise. Right. And so this brings a whole new meaning to respect your elders. Mm -hmm. um, so this concludes today's podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you. And we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, so this podcast actually is the end of part one of the book and, and the end of part one of this series of podcasts. The next group of podcasts are going to be about how to conduct sessions. And then, and then the third part of the, of the book and the podcast is going to be about different kinds of problems, different kinds of pathology that we have to deal with. So when you're done with an idea of you know how to conduct sessions, how to conduct a basic generic psychotherapy, and you've got an idea of the full range of different problems that you're going to encounter, you're going to be a competent therapist, or at least a pretty good beginner. And so we're looking forward to being together again for the second uh, series of podcasts. But for the moment, this concludes part one. So right. thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.